chapter 9. Um, Brother Richard began this for us last time. We're going to dive back in this time. Um, and, uh, and, and by, with God's help, um, we'll grow from this. Uh, Richard mentioned last time, and he's right, this is one of the toughest passages in all of Scripture. It's not tough to understand what it's saying. That's what Richard claimed, and I think he's right. Uh, I think it's tough to digest it, believe it, and uh, accept it. But it is Holy Scripture, so let's treat it as thus. I say that to say many of you may have been in church most of your lives, and you might not have actually heard anyone talk about Romans 9 um, or dive into it. So keep that in mind as you read it. it, it you may be reading it um, or hearing it for one of the first times. So Romans 9, verse 6, let's start there and read together. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And... Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau... I hate it. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. You'll say to me then, Well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed He says in Hosea, those who were not My people, I will call My people. 
And her who is, was not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth full and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were written, but as if it were based on works. Let's pray. Father, this is very tough. It's very hard for us. We think we understand fairness and we think we understand justice. We think we understand You on our own. I just pray right now that You would be so kind as to give us a humility as creatures to submit ourselves under the Word of God that is to submit ourselves unto our Creator and say, You speak, God. You explain Yourself to us. And where our pride and where our arrogance wants so bad to say it's not fair, I pray, God, You would show us the unbelievable mercy You have shown to us by giving Your Son everything but fairness on the cross that He bore our sins. Exalt Yourself as the merciful God that You are. And would You, Father, by Your Spirit, work in hearts, in our hearts, to submit to You and be utterly humbled by You. We ask these things to You, Father, through the name of our brother Jesus, that Your Spirit would work. Amen. I, um, I enjoy argumentation and debate. So um, over the last week or so, I have spent time watching the Senate impeachment trial. I know you're thinking, I thought you enjoyed argumentation and debate. Why would you watch that? Um, but I have. Um, I can't watch it live, um, but I go back and try to watch different portions of it. And so I've been trying to be uh, careful that when I'm listening to different presentations to realize that I didn't get to hear all the presentation and that there's part of their argument that I might not fully grasp. And that's all I've got to say about the impeachment trial. Um, so you can relax. Romans 9 will feel a lot easier. Um, well, the first 11 chapters of Romans, it's a single argument. And so it's only fair to Paul that we go back and just get an idea of what is it that Paul, across 11 chapters of an argument, is arguing. So as we review the argument, I'm going to do it like this. And I'll put this on your handout. Let's consider his argument as to how it might be understood against 
the way that many people believe today. That is, I think one of the best ways to understand an argument is to give a contra-argument. Well, what is it not saying? Well, last time I preached, I described a position that many people in our world and many people around us believe in, and you could call it the fallen but fine position. And here's an angle at which we could describe that. A person who holds to this, and think about friends, family, co-workers, Tell me if this doesn't describe a lot of the folks you know. They would believe that they were born basically good. They admit that they've done some bad actions, but it's really because of the other bad actions and influences of others around them that have made them make some bad choices. They would also say when it comes to God, they believe He, he knows that they mean to do good, but they've been affected by evil of others. When it comes to final judgment, they believe that hell is reserved for those who are basically bad. And since God knows that they're basically good, He's going to let them go to heaven. I want you to see out of the gate that Paul defines good news as us being saved by being given a righteousness that is not our own. Romans chapter 1 Verse 6 and 17, it's the summation of the entire argument right here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it should all be on your handout, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as is written, the righteous shall shall live by faith. So the good news is the power of God for what? For salvation, that is the process of being saved. So pause a moment, clear your mind of churchy language, and just picture this. You're on the street, somebody runs up to you and says, I've got good news, we are going to be saved. That's what they say. But what is the first thing that you want to ask them if you have all churchy language out? The first thing you're going to say back, I promise, is saved from what? Right? That's a fair question. i got good news. We're going to be saved. The response is, good. Saved from what? Well, I want you to see that already, Paul has already decimated the fallen but fine position. Why? Because Paul says we have good news that we can be saved from the wrath of God But the fallen but fine position doesn't see a need of anything from which to be saved. They think they are already fine. Basically good. But Paul says only God can give us a righteousness that is good and it is not our own. It comes from God. And how do we get it? Well, verse 17 says that we get it from the beginning and the end by what? Faith. Faith is a heart-held belief. It is a heart-held belief that we need a right standing with God and it has to be given as a gift from God in order that we would have it. Paul continues chapters 1-3 through of Romans as he's building his argument and he shows that every person is not born basically good but actually born basically bad as we follow in the footsteps of the first humans, Adam and Eve, 
who sinned against God. So our problem is not that we are basically good and have been made bad by others. Our problem is that we are born basically bad. And this is true of the Jew who seeks to follow the law, but it's also true of the Gentile who doesn't even know the law. And in chapter 2, Paul gives a little bit more clarification as to how we are made right with God. He turns everything on its head in verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the, not, sorry, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Paul explains that becoming a child of God, a Jew, doesn't happen by law-keeping, but by the Spirit. God changes a person's heart. This is, this is it. So God changes our heart and gives us the ability to see our fallen position and to see that Jesus offers us a right standing with God. Law-keeping doesn't make us children of God. God makes us children of God. And you're going to see that throughout this, this morning. So Paul sums this up for us great in 5.17. In Romans 5.17, he says, we're just moving on through here, for if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, oh, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Catch this. Paul explains that every person identifies with either Adam or Jesus. Each of us identifies with Adam in the fact that we are born into sin and continue to follow his way. But there's a gift of righteousness that some are given because of the life and death of Jesus. So unlike the fallen but fine position, which believes we don't need, which believes that we are bad because of the outside influence, Paul says you don't need an outside influence to be bad. All you have to do is to be born. That's it. But you do need an outside influence in order for you to be good. You need a gift of righteousness that you don't have. Paul uses chapters 5-7 through seven to show us that God's law was a gift to show us our need for outside help. And he explains in chapters 7 and 8 that those who have faith in the grace of God, we're not freed from sinning, nor are we freed from the effects of the fallen world. Instead, even those who have placed their faith in Jesus will battle sin, will battle sinful desires, and suffer, and sometimes greatly suffer as they live in a broken world. And then we get Romans 8, 28-29. Massively important verses in Scripture. Brother Paul says, And we know, and that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Paul argues 
that even though there is suffering in this world, there are those whom God has called who will experience one day full goodness. And these who are called are those whom God has foreknown. And what does the word foreknown mean? Well, the fore part means beforehand. And when the word known is used throughout the Old Testament to speak about a person, it's not mere knowledge of a person, but a close relationship with a person. And I gave you a slew of examples. I'm not going to go through them right now. I gave them to your handout. Please go back and see them. You'll see every time the word's known used there, it has to do with a relationship. So to be foreknown by God is to be loved by God beforehand from the beginning. This verse says that there is hope for those who God has loved from the beginning because He predestined them. He chose them or elected them to be conformed to the image of His Son. So there is hope for God's chosen because God loved them before the creation of the world and predestined or determined to show them mercy by not leaving them as sons of Adam, but by conforming them into the image of Jesus. And this amazing promise that comes at the end of chapter 8, a promise exclusively for those whom God has chosen, leads to the concern of chapter 9. And that's where we land. What if God changes His mind? What if He changes His mind? That is, if the promise... This amazing promise that things await those who God has chosen, what if God decides to act differently? You say, well, who would even ask such a question, Paul? Why? Well, Paul knew that there are some who are going to say, wait a second, God once chose the Jews and He gave up on them. So, what if He decides to also give up on His newly chosen ones? That's the main concern of chapter 9. That right there. Chapter 8, 28 and 29 is an unbelievable promise for all of human history. And chapter 9 says, can it be believed? Verse 6 of chapter 9, Paul answers the, the question, can it be believed? Here it is. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. His response, Paul's response is clear. You don't need to worry about God changing His mind because He never changed His mind about Israel. If you think He changed His mind about Israel, you're wrong. He never changed His mind. From the beginning, God has not loved them because of their ancestry. No, no, no. God has been incredibly consistent. God loves the ones He has chosen to love. That's the argument. Paul goes on to explain that there are other sons of Abraham who God did not show such favor. Isaac was the only one that He chose. There are others. Ishmael's one of them. That's verses 6-9. through nine. Paul makes that argument. He goes further in verses 10 through 13 to explain that even of Isaac's children, so the promise goes from Abraham to Isaac, then Isaac has two children. He has two. 
He explains that even though Isaac has two children, God chose one, Jacob, and not the other one, Esau. And Esau actually should have been the chosen. If anybody's chosen, it should have been Esau. Because he's the oldest. But it's Jacob. He explains that Jacob was foreknown or loved beforehand by God before he was born. So that Jacob was chosen not because of anything he did or did not do. Whoa. Now just to see the consistency of Paul, let's skip down all the way to verse 25. He's going to reiterate this basically. Verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I'll call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out the sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, says Paul, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, that is, made us children, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Here it is again. Listen to what he's saying. Those who are saved are those whom God has chosen to show His love. That's the whole argument. It doesn't make sense if it's anything different. He gives examples. Even the Gentiles. That's verse 25. Those who were not My people have now become what? My people. Well, what's the difference? He called them my people. That's how they became my people. And there will be many Jews who will not be chosen by God. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Verse 27. Finally, Anyone God does not choose will face His judgment. This is what he says in verse 29. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring. Now we don't use that language that often. Nobody has asked me lately, how many offspring do you have? Right? They ask me how many children. But what's the point? If the Lord of hosts had not made us children, if the Lord of hosts had not chosen us, we would have been like Sodom. In other words, we would be judged. He further clarifies in verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based off of works. They've stumbled, stumbled over the stumbling stone. So Gentiles, we would be included in that group, who cared nothing about following God, now have been given a righteousness they did not earn. That's verse 30. Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. And some Jews who were working to earn their light righteousness were left guilty before God. That's verse 31. But Israel, who pursued a law, would lead to righteousness, did not 
succeed in reaching that. Well, what is reaching that? That is to reach the point where you're not found guilty before God. They didn't succeed. Why did they not succeed? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Why did some Gentiles have faith and some Jews not have faith? You have to go all the way back to the top. For the same reason that not all Abraham's children were part of Israel. And for the same reason why Jacob was part and Esau was not. Why? Because only, this is the clear logic of Romans 9 that Richard pointed out last time, because only those whom God has chosen to show His mercy are saved. So recall, the main question of Romans 9 is how can we believe that God will fulfill His promise to His chosen? The clear answer is God always fulfills His promises to His chosen. He always has. He always wills. Major point. God shows love to those He has chosen. And to those He has chosen love, those He has chosen love Him through faith. That is the definition of faith. When our eyes are open to see that we have no righteousness, and that our only hope is that God would give us a righteousness that is not our own. That is Jesus. You could sum up the Gospel this way. I think it's the clearest explanation of the Gospel there is. God's children, His chosen, are saved by God from the wrath of God for the glory of God. It's all begins and ends with God. Okay, so where does that leave us? Richard said last time that Romans 9 is not hard to understand, it's just hard to swallow. I fully agree with that. I'm sure that many of us are sitting here and thinking, but how is this okay? If you're following... If you're not following, you're like, whatever, let's just get, get through this. But if you're following, you're thinking, how is it fair? How is it fair that only those whom God has chosen are shown mercy? How's that right? Richard did a great job explaining last time that Paul knew that objection was coming, and he gives us verse 14. Listen to verse 14. It is the objection stated. It's Paul answering the objection. It's unbelievably helpful. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You could substitute the word unfairness. Is God unfair? By no means. Paul's response is God is not unfair. Absolutely not. Okay? Well, how, Paul? He then reminds his readers of the time when Moses prayed for mercy for the people after they built the golden calf. What was God's response as Moses prayed? Verse 15. He's quoting here from Exodus 33. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So why does God show them mercy after they go build and worship a golden calf? Is it because they really didn't mean to build a calf? Or maybe they were tricked. Or maybe they promised they'll just do better next time. No. What is God's reason for showing them mercy? 
I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I chose to show them mercy, so I will show them mercy. Paul's point is that God isn't now acting in some new way that He's not acted before. He's acting in the same way He has ever since the beginning of calling Israel. Just in case we miss a point, Paul lays it as clear as he can in verse 16. So then, it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, He chose Jacob before He was born. He chose the Gentiles even when they were ignoring His law. There is no room for boasting because all depends upon God's grace. Paul explains that God is in full control over all human behavior. Look at verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why bring up Pharaoh? Well, God is not just in control over the people to whom He has mercy. No, He's in full control when people disobey Him. Every time a human leader does something horrible, none of us should look and go, how could God have just let that happen? No, according to this, God is in control of every action. Everything that happens. Nothing happens without His sovereign control. When Moses went to Pharaoh and he demanded he let the Israelites go, imagine this. Imagine Moses goes and says, hey, Pharaoh... God said, let my people go. And imagine Pharaoh's response would have been this at the very beginning of Exodus. Sure, no problem. When do y'all want to leave? Okay, and they left. What would have been different? There would be ten plagues that would have never happened where we saw the unbelievable work of God. We would have missed the entire Exodus event where God stomped on the strongest empire of the world. And if you've ever read the Psalms, just go through the Psalms. This would be a fun exercise. Count the number of times when God talks about how He rescued the people from Egypt. Why do I make that point? Because Pharaoh's disobedience secured the stage for the glory of God. In a single event, we see that God sovereignly controls both those to whom He has mercy and those who disobey Him. That's the point of verse 18. So then, He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. While in a single event, we see one group, the Israelites, who were saved from judgment, And we see another individual whom God did not show His mercy, but He showed judgment, namely Pharaoh. One He had mercy, and one He hardened. And I agree with Richard as he explained it last time. When he said that God hardened Pharaoh, it doesn't mean He made him any worse than He already was. Instead, He didn't restrain him from being as evil as He already was. One of the worst judgments that God levels on any human being, it's a scary judgment, is if He, restrain, if he removes His hand from restraining us to be as evil 
as we already are. Christians never look at the world around us and say, how could this be this evil? That's actually not a Christian response. You know what the Christian response is? Every time. It is horrible. But given what we know about our broken condition, only God's mercy is keeping this in check as much as it is. That was the promise of the rainbow in, in Noah's day. I'll not let this happen again. I'll restrain this until the time is right. So the question was asked in verse 14, if God is being unfair, Paul responds that God is not unfair as he determines that some receive mercy and that others receive judgment. So when asked if God's being unfair, what is the response? God shows mercy on those who don't deserve mercy. And He gives judgment on those who deserve judgment. There's nothing unfair about that. Paul knows it's not going to satisfy his audience. Hence, we get verse 19. You'll say to me then, he just he says, I know it's coming. I do this to my kids all the time as we're debating things. I say, here it is. Hold on. I know it's coming, but that's not fair, right? I know, and then I just go ahead and argue it for them, right? It's exactly what Paul's doing for us here. He says, you're going to say, well, then why does he still find fault? Verse 19, who can resist his will? So, Paul, if God does whatever he wants, then how can he hold any human responsible? How is it the responsibility or fault of any human if God is the one who chooses? Verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of one, out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul responds by asking, Who are you to ask this question? That is, what gives you the right as a creature to start questioning your Creator? God is the potter. He has the right to make one clay that will be honored with salvation and another clay that will be dishonored with judgment. It's His right. That might feel to you like a non-answer. But can I warn us that it's really important? There's a fear of God, a respect of persons that must always go before us when we consider the ways of God. He's not our equal. He's not simply the man upstairs. He is our sovereign Creator. Amen. We submit to His ways. That's 20, 20, 21, 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Paul says that God willingly deals with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Just stop and feel the weight of that. You remember in verse eight? I mean, in chapter eight. You remember how Paul says that all the creation groans, just waiting for the day when when God's going to bring this all to its culmination. 
We all feel this when we look at our world and we see the evil and the brokenness of it. Imagine the amount of massive patience shown by God when He looks at the evils committed in our world and doesn't just immediately render judgment. I mean, immediately just said, that's it, you're finished. But He just lets it continue. And just lets it continue. What is He doing? He is patiently enduring with vessels of wrath. Let it also be known, there will be a day of judgment that comes. It says there, they are already destined for destruction. So we may look at the heavens and at times say, oh God, how could you let this happen? And the answer, according to this verse, is every injustice will be dealt with. It will all be just in the end. Why would God endure with such evil, with such patience? Paul says that God has done this in order to let this serve as the backdrop to His amazing kindness and mercy shown to those He loved. That is, while God will certainly be glorified for the justice He exhibits against man's disobedience, it is going to pale in comparison, in glory, for the glory God will receive to those whom He has shown mercy. When the beloved by God sees, finally sees, you, have, you and I have never seen the wrath of God. The closest we have any, any hint of what the wrath of God looks like is the destruction of the cross. And we, we don't, we've only read about it. That's the closest. I think the closest picture of the wrath of God that any of us has ever even pictured is Jesus praying in the garden with sweat coming down like blood, begging God, I, is there any other way? He knew what the wrath of God was going to feel like, and it about killed Him. We've never seen the wrath of God. But there's coming a day when we are going to look at the wrath of God as God's beloved, and what's going to happen according to this. There's going to be this moment when we see it and finally, finally we will see the amazing mercy we've been shown. That's the point of verse 23. When the beloved looked to finally see the measure of His mercy, I mean of His wrath, only then will they see the measure of His glory. And those whom God has shown mercy will forever declare His glory, a glory He, according to verse 23, prepared beforehand, before the beginning of the world. I hope you notice I played this close to the vest. I've just walked right through the text. I'm really trying to imitate the wisdom that Richard demonstrated as he walked us through much of this already. I think we're both aware how hard this text is to swallow. I don't want the fact that it's hard to swallow for us to miss some important distinctions, and we'll end with those. Five observations. First notice that when Paul asked the question, why does God... 
find fault, he does not respond by saying, oh, he doesn't find fault. That is, Paul does not claim that those who face the wrath of God are not responsible for their sin. He doesn't say that. While the text is clear that nobody, including Pharaoh, ever acts without, uh, without full, uh, God's full control, the Bible also upholds that each person bears the full responsibility of his actions. So I believe this means we all freely choose to sin. And when we choose to sin, I believe it fully originates from our own personal desire in our own will. I fully believe this passage and the rest of Scripture demonstrate that every person is responsible for his or her own sin. Second, I believe the text, this text along with Romans 8, and I, there's a slew of other ones, demonstrate that God is always fully responsible for salvation. I believe that this passage makes nothing else clear. It certainly makes clear that the only reason a person is saved from the wrath of God is because God in His kindness has chosen to save them from eternity past. The end of the story. So I believe that men are fully responsible and God is fully responsible for their sin. God is fully responsible for salvation. Third, I believe God's wrath is perfectly just and it needs no explanation. That is, there's nothing unfair about God punishing a sinner for a sin. The Bible doesn't ever try to defend itself against that idea because it's unnecessary. Men are fully responsible for sin. God is fully responsible for salvation. God is perfectly just to punish sin. Fourth, the Bible does spend quite a bit of time arguing for the justice of God in His desire to show mercy. That is, the Bible gives us great detail as how it is okay that God shows mercy on those whom He who have sinned. That needs an explanation. You get that? Just imagine. President or governor decides right now that they're going to show clemency and pardon some criminal. What's the first thing that their staff starts doing? Drafting papers explaining why it's okay, how they've thoroughly reviewed the case, right? They need an explanation for the pardon. That's exactly what the Bible is doing all the time with why in the world it's okay that God would ever pardon us sinners. Why is that okay? Well, it needs an explanation. And that explanation is that God's Son who never sinned was treated as though He had sinned. On the cross, Jesus stood as a substitute for us in our sins so that God might be just, fair in showing mercy. So yes, the Gospel places the justice of God in question, and the answer is so stinking messy that the God of the universe was hung naked on a cross and faced the full wrath of God for everyone in order that God could show mercy and in doing that, be just. Men are fully responsible for sin. God is fully responsible for salvation. God is perfectly just to punish sin. And only the cross allows God to remain fully just and abundantly merciful. Finally, let me state, grace is hard to come by. What I mean by that is grace is hard to accept. 
especially for prideful people who love to pride themselves on hard work. As much as I'd love to stand here and tell you how much I love grace, because that's just what it feels like you're supposed to do. The honest truth is, I detest it. That's the honest truth. Grace is being treated better than you deserve. That's the definition of grace. And whether I want to admit it or not, I spend a ton of energy trying to demonstrate that I'm not the product of some handout. I haven't achieved much in life, but what I have achieved, I'd like to think I've got it through some hard work. I can't stand the thought that someone would believe that I have just been handed something. We don't like grace. We don't like it. Friends, let me be clear. There is no way into heaven except by grace. It is the moment when you realize I am not getting what I deserve. If I were to get what I deserve, I would experience the full wrath of God. By definition, a child of God is a person who is treated a billion times better than he deserves. If anybody hears chapter 9 and walks away thumping their chest that they're a child of God, they are an ignorant fool. Romans chapter 9 leaves you humiliated before God because you realize there is no reason that I am part of the family of God. I don't deserve it. It's a complete handout. And the Son of God paid dearly for it. Nothing in my hands I bring only to the cross I cling. Let's close with verse 22 and 24. Let's just read them. Or verse 22 and 23. What if God, just feel the weight of this. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Let's pray. Father, We don't understand Your ways. They don't all make sense to us. But I do believe this text is clear. If any of us are to be saved, it is only because You 
have decided to show us mercy that we don't deserve. Every one of us deserves to feel the full weight of our sin. Inasmuch as anybody is sitting in a pew here this morning, you have shown the mercy to be able to even hear of the wonderful work you have done in the Gospel. Father, I pray that you would mightily save, bring about faith, perhaps in a heart that's here that has not seen his or her need for grace. Help them to turn to you, embrace you, and love you. Deeply love you. Not because of what they've done or haven't done. Not because of any new resolutions they're going to make. But purely by grace to say, I just want to be yours. I just want to be yours, God. Father, thank You. Thank You that Christ Jesus is ours forevermore. It is our hope. It is all we have and it is all we need. We ask these things to You, Father, through the strong name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.